Since the beginning of this year, we've been talking about the fact that life for the believer in Jesus is mission. And uh, I spent the first several weeks really unpacking what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by life. Here's what I mean by mission is you already get. And what I did last week instead is I said, you know, instead of going back through all of that and rehearsing it, let me just give you a picture. Here's how a day in the life of someone who's living life as mission at least begins and hopefully then continues. So it looks like this. It looks like you and me who belong to Christ waking up every single moment and saying, good morning, Lord. Now, why do we say that other than the fact that we are, you know, nice people? We say that because we realize as we enter into life in this day that God has invited me to live life in this day in a personal relationship with Him. We do not serve an impersonal force. We do not serve a distant God. We serve a God who is absolutely everywhere in the fullness of His being all at the same time, which means, by the way, that He's right here, right now. And all the metaphors that he uses to describe our relationship with him are personal relationships. I'm his son. You're his son or daughter. We're members of his family. We're citizens of his kingdom. He is our king and we are his subjects and so on and so forth that goes. We say good morning, Lord, because the Lord is real and the Lord is personal. And that's what he calls you to through faith in Jesus. So good morning, Lord. And then here comes the confession of faith. I do not belong to me. I belong to you. Pause. What does that mean? It means, God, that this life that I have my fingers wrapped so tightly around, this life that if I'm really going to be honest, and he already knows this, so you might as well just be honest. I desperately want to control. I desperately want to possess for myself. I desperately want to use as I see fit. This life that I call mine is actually not mine. It's yours. So, good morning, Lord. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. And I belong to you by virtue of creation. You are the author of my life. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You brought me into existence. And even more than that, you gave me my every talent, my every ability, all of my intellect, all of my energy, my every heartbeat, my every breath. Everything that I am and everything that I have is the result of what you have given to me. And in addition to that, I'm Yours by virtue of redemption, if you have a relationship with God, that personal relationship through this faith in Jesus Christ, it's because God reached down amongst the mass of humanity and plucked you out of it and said, you are mine. He purchased you with the blood of his son and he washed you with it, made you clean and brought you into his family and filled you with his spirit. So good morning, Lord. I I don't belong to me. I, I belong to you and I need to say it every day. Because it's amazing how fast our hands start to contract around our lives. All right, here's the next part of the statement. The next part of the statement is simply, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. We've talked a little bit about this, but I mean, really, like who has the better plan for you, God or you? Because you cannot be a rational being and argue that it's going to be you. You just, you can't, you want to, but you can't. The all-wise God, the all-knowing God, the everywhere-present God, the all-seeing God, the all-good God, the all-good God, the all-loving God who spared not His Son for you. So what else is He going to withhold? has the better plan for your life. Listen, left to ourselves, here's what we're going to do. We're going to clench our little lives in our little hands and we're going to take these little lives and we're going to invest these little lives in things that in the end will entirely die and just frankly not matter. 
But if day by day we get up and say, you know what, good morning, Lord, I'm going to kind of open my hands up. I was getting a cramp anyway, so I'm going to eat a banana after that. That'll help. And I'm going to give you my life because you know what? I don't belong to me. I belong to you. And that's a good thing. He will take your life and then he will invest it in things that in the end will never die and ultimately alone will matter. So good morning, Lord. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. That's a good thing. All right. So how do you want to use me today? All of me. How do you want to use me today to take your gospel mercies and, and the word and is big. It's like the word for the day and your gospel message. Not only to the people that I'm going to work and live and play with today, the people in my little world, not only to the people in this city in which my church, to which I am an integral part, I am one part of a body belong and it exists, but even to the ends of the earth. I mean, you know, you're an end of the earth kind of God. You are a global God. This is a global mission. I'm a global Christian by definition. So then what does that look like today? Do I need to pray for the missionaries? Do I need to write them a check? Do I need to lay my life before you and go, "Ah, do I need to go to Haiti? Because these guys are talking about it nonstop and it's starting to get irritating. Is that what you want me to do? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to take your mercies and your message to the world today? Good morning, Lord. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. That's a good thing. Here am I. Send me. Life is mission. And what we're going to see today is we continue our study of this book of Acts that we've already been studying through for several weeks now that's written by Luke and in which he gives us a picture of the early church, these people who got this. They learned to live their lives as mission and, and it's recorded for our benefit that we might learn to live our lives as mission. What we're going to see today is that when it comes to the gospel mercies of Jesus, his active dealing with the effects of sin in this world, suffering, hunger, thirst, homelessness, Sickness, disease, divorce, death, addiction, all of the effects of sin in this world, his gospel mercies and his gospel message by which men alone are saved, apart from which there is no eternal life, but in which there is abundant and eternal life. When it comes to his gospel mercies and message, the bottom line is that it's a both and. It's not an either or. That's what we'll see as we pick up our study this morning in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says, now Peter and John, who were not only good apostles of Jesus, but they were good Jewish men who observed the prayer practices of the Jews, and while in Jerusalem observed the prayer practices of the temple, were going up to the temple at the afternoon hour of prayer. And I add that because there were two hours of prayer every day in the temple. There was the morning and there was the afternoon, and we know that this is the afternoon because he gives us the time of day. He says, at the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon. And so you've got to envision this. Here come Peter and John, along with just about every other observant Jew in the city. They're all crowding up into the temple entering into the outer courts from all these different gates to go up to the hour of prayer. And these guys, I think it's safe to say at this moment in time, have a lot on their minds. My goodness, two weeks ago we saw how Peter preached and 3,000 people joined his church in one day. So he went from being the pastor of 120 to the pastor of 3,120, and it just keeps expanding, right? So he is a megachurch pastor overnight. That's a lot of stuff. But in addition to that, within their own lifetime, these guys who are principal leaders of this movement called Christianity will see this movement called Christianity to the glory of God by the power of His Spirit, according to a secular writer, quote, turn the world upside down. I said last week, you know, we tend to look back at these people that lived in ancient days and think that, you know, what did they do with all their time? 
like they're less busy than we are. And we kind of unpack that and we realize, oh, wait a minute, they were at least as busy as we are, and they were busy with more fundamental things than we are. These guys are really busy guys. They have a whole lot going on and a lot on them and a lot on their minds. And they're heading up into the temple and it's sort of in the midst of this frenzy of activity that Luke then introduces us to the next person in verse 2. He says, and a man, and don't miss this, lame from birth. So this is a guy who has never walked. It's not like he used to walk, but he's in rehab, and he think he might be able to regain his strength, and hopefully he'll be able to walk again. No, his legs have been useless to him from birth. So they're emaciated. There's no muscle mass. There's Picture this man. A man lame from birth was being carried because, you know, that's how you got around back then when you couldn't walk. There were no wheelchairs. There were no motorized scooters. There were none of the modern-day conveniences that help, at least, to lessen the suffering of a man like this, though certainly they don't alleviate it. What happened is in the morning, your buddies would come or your family would come, and they'd pick you up on the mat that you laid on, your life was consigned to, and then they would take you to your spot. Because your only hope of earning money and contributing to the household income was as a beggar, which, as we'll see, is exactly what he is. And this guy has the primo spot in the city. It's his place. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they, his family and friends, laid daily, every single day where? At the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, which in all likelihood is the gate that separated the outer courts of the temple from the court of the women. And so everybody who's coming up to the hour of prayer twice a day would go in and out and in and out of the gate that this guy laid by asking for money, asking for alms, we read, of those entering the temple. And so let me ask you, how many people in Jerusalem do you think at least knew who this guy was? Because I'm going to go with pretty much everybody. That's the way it works in the city. You see the same people day by day. When Beth and I got married, we moved to Chicago, and we lived right on the corner of Michigan Avenue and Randolph Street. And I say that only because the law firm I worked at was six blocks up Randolph, and so I walked the same six blocks twice a day. And I walked past the same, oftentimes lame, beggars, every single day twice. And I kind of got to know them a little bit, you know, and they kind of got to know me. And when they missed a day, I was a little concerned. When I missed a day, they would say, hey, man, didn't see you yesterday. I'm like, yeah, no, Dunkin' Donuts is a block over. And so I hit there because I dig the coffee. And I mean, I didn't know their name. They didn't know my name. But if you would have come to me and said, hey, Tom, do you know the lady? She sits on the southeast corner of Michigan and Randolph. She sits there in a little wheelchair. So obviously her family or friends or somebody drops her off there early in the morning before all the rush. And she's all wrapped up in a blanket. She's an older lady. She looks straight ahead. She says nothing to no one. And the only thing protruding from the blanket other than her face is her little hand. I would have stopped you far earlier in that description and said, of course, I know exactly who you're talking about. Okay, look, here's, here's the deal. That's this guy. Everybody knows who he is. He's the lame guy who lays by the beautiful gate on the right side as you're going in. And everybody knows because they walk by him four times a day and by everybody, I mean Peter and John too. How many times have they walked by this guy? 
and seen him, but not really seen him. How many times have they cruised on by and noticed, you know, that he's there, but didn't notice him? How many times have they moved past him, but not been moved by him? hundred times? Five hundred times? A thousand times? I mean, it adds up pretty quick. How many times do we do that? You know, as I thought about this passage and this guy, there are a lot of kinds of lameness in this world. And they're not all physical. I mean, you know, some are. But all of us are lame in one way or another. We are lame of heart. We are lame of mind. We are lame of soul. Everybody that we walk by every single day in our offices, in our schools, in our city, down at Starbucks, down at Dunkin' Donuts, wherever, are all of them, like us, broken, wounded people who have been hurt deeply and even devastated in many cases, either by their own sin or by the sin of others or just by the fact that they live in a world that is broken and sinful. And they need to be seen. They need to be noticed. They need not just to be moved past, but we need to be moved by them. They need for us to stop like these guys are going to do and extend not just the mercies of Jesus, though that's coming, but the message too. They need both because when it comes to the gospel mercies and message of Jesus, it's not an either or, it's a both and. We cannot simply major on mercy and leave out the message that is an aberration, just like we cannot simply major on the message and not deal with the fact that Jesus calls us to move purposefully and even sacrificially into the world, and just as He did, just as they did, give our lives away to meet the needs of people who've been affected by sin. And so Peter and John have got a lot on their minds, man, and they're heading in a hurry through the gate called Beautiful, you know, and they're planning their next worship service or whatever probably as they're going. And Luke says in verse 3 that seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he, this lame beggar, asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, which I just think is Luke's way of saying, you know what, this was the day they finally saw him. This was the day they noticed him. This was the day they were moved by him, and they saw in his face a reflection of their own humanity, of their own brokenness, of their own neediness, of the reality that instead of being different from him, they're just like him, maybe just a little different physically. We all have the same needs. And so Peter stopped in the midst of his hurry. And he said, look at us. I love that. And I think that's what the world is doing. I think they're looking at us. I think the people in each one of our individual worlds who know that we belong to Jesus, who know that we come to church, who know that we, whatever, claim Christ, okay, are looking at us. I think the people in the city here are looking to the church with a capital C. I think the people around the world are are looking to the church with a capital C. And here's what they're wondering. They're wondering when we, like Christ, are going to selflessly jump into the midst of their mess and give ourselves away to help. Proclaiming the gospel as we go. And I think they're doing that because they know just enough about the life of Jesus to figure that his people would be, you know, sort of like that. 
In light of the teachings of Scripture, it's understandable. And so Peter and John stop. They're going to heal this man. They get this. When it comes to the gospel mercies and message, both and, not either or. And not only do they get this, but the church that they led got this. It's amazing what these people did. I'll give you one example. Back in the first few centuries of the church, when a plague would strike a city, and plagues struck cities back then. We don't hear a lot about that today, but it was very different back then. I mean, if you think about it, you can understand why that would be the case. You get this mass of people, you crowd them all together, and now they're living together, right? And there's no garbage truck to come to pick up their garbage. They don't have any of that. They don't have toilets that flush and, you know, sewer systems that take stuff away. They, They don't have any of that. They don't even have running water. They don't have Lysol, they don't have Purell, they don't have antibacterials, they they don't have an understanding of bacteria, they don't know how viruses work, they don't have doctors and all of that kind of stuff, they don't have any of the sanitary habits, frankly, that keep us a whole lot healthier than they were. They don't have pest control companies to come take care of the rats and the... I mean, very different. And it's a breeding ground of disease. And when disease struck, standard operating procedure in ancient days was for every healthy person in the city who caught wind of the fact that the disease is spreading through the city like wildfire because that's the way it worked. Every healthy person in the city, standard operating procedure, flee the city. Get out as fast as you can, lest you get the disease and die. And all the healthy people outside the city, okay, well, I guess our business with that city is done. You know, I'm not going in there unless you were a believer in Christ, in which case standard operating procedure for the believers in Jesus were to stay in the city, knowing that they might get sick and die. Or if they lived outside the city, to go into the city. You know, it's like they got both north and southbound lanes of traffic open to get everybody out, and these guys are fishing their way through, trying to get in wise, so that they could minister in the name of Jesus, preaching the gospel as they go to the sick into the hurting. And we have eyewitness accounts that were written down and described the way that they behaved. I want to read to you one. I don't know who this is, but this guy says this. He says, most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in the name of Christ. And then he says, and many of these Christians departed their life serenely happy, for they were infected by their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their neighbors' pains. So many in nursing others to health transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their place. Now, where did they get that idea? Who does that sound like? You know what else happened? Christianity spread like wildfire. Christianity went viral. By the beginning of the fourth century, so early 300s, Christianity, against all odds, shockingly became the national religion for the Roman Empire. Why? Because even the most skeptical people in the world will listen to the gospel coming out of the lips, coming out of the mouth of someone who lives like that. When it comes to the gospel mercies and message of Jesus, it's not an either or. 
It's a both and. And Peter, who finally sees this lame man, says to the guy, look at us. And then Luke says in verse 5, and the lame man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So he's thinking money, obviously. That's what he's asking for. But Peter said to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And by the way, it is far more valuable than silver and gold. Little stopping point there too, isn't there? Is that true? Is that true for you? Is that true for me? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the mission of Jesus Christ, is the mercy of Jesus Christ, is the message of Jesus Christ, is life as mission for Jesus Christ more valuable to you than your stuff? He comes to us and he says, you know what? Tithe. Fill the storehouse that the storehouse might be there to help people. Hey, you know what? Put your stuff on the table along with everything else and and let me dispense it as the Spirit leads you throughout the day in ways that, frankly, will scare you at times. Peter looks at this guy and he says, Look, I, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's where the power is. It's not in our stuff. It's not in our connections. It's not in our abilities. It's not in our talents. It's not in our gifts. It's not in anything other than Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he says, rise up and walk. That's just awesome. That is so totally cool. So I was reading this commentary that I've been studying through for this series, um, There's a story in it about St. Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century uh, Italian priest, very famous and um, person. And St. Thomas, according to the story, went to see the Pope. It was Pope Innocent II. He walks in the Pope's room, and there's a big table, and the Pope's counting money. And the Pope sees St. Thomas coming in, and he says, See, Thomas, the church can no longer say, I, I have no silver and gold to give you. And Thomas immediately replied, Yes, Your Holiness, but she can also no longer say, Rise and walk. Jesus is who and what we need. The power is in his name. Peter looks at this guy and he says, look, I don't have that, but let me give to you what I've got, and it's much better. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took this lame man by his right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet, which have never worked, and his ankles, which have never worked, and all of which were utterly weak and emaciated, as you might imagine, were made strong. This is astounding. And leaping up, this man who had never walked stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and leaping and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms because, you know, I mean, he's that guy. They all knew who he was. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while this now formerly lame man clung to Peter and John, wouldn't you? All the people, utterly astounded, said, we're we're going to skip the prayer time today because this is unreal. They ran together to them in the portico, the shaded area in in the big temple courts called Solomon's. And now Peter, who understands that when it comes to the gospel mercies and message of Jesus, It's a both and. 
Okay, so now he's going to have to preach sermon number two. He's going to bring the gospel to these people who are gathered around this miraculous display of mercy. And it says, and when Peter saw this great crowd gathered around them, he addressed the people and said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own piety, we have made him walk? It's not us. It's God. And incidentally, isn't that what you want to be a part of? I mean, isn't that kind of like what we all long for? And we sang, give me more of you. I think that's what we really want. I think we want to be a part of something that can't be explained by our ingenuity, by our resources, by our powers, by our intellect, by our whatever, something that we can at the end of it all look at and go, man, you know, that's just so much better than we were. That was the Lord who did that. That's what these guys are doing. Peter says, look, it's not us, guys. Let me tell you who it is. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God who alone can do these kinds of things, glorified his servant Jesus. You know the one that you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, the Roman governor. When Pilate had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, Peter says, and asked for a murderer, that man Barabbas who Pilate offered Do you want Jesus to be released or this guy? You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So here again, subtlety. It's really something. You killed the author of life whom God behaved very differently toward. God raised him from the dead. And to this resurrection of Jesus, Peter says, we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you all see and whom you all know because he's the guy that sits by the, well, you know, you see him every day. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. What is Peter saying? He's saying, look... (laughs) The one that you crucified, God has raised up. The author of life you killed, he's the author of life that you killed. The one whom you denied, that was your Christ and Messiah. You rejected the hope of the world. God raised him from the dead, placed him back on the throne, and just as the prophets promised and just as Jesus promised, he has sent his Holy Spirit and he has sent them upon his apostles. And through the Holy Spirit, through these apostles, this Jesus who is alive and well and sits on heaven's throne is continuing to do the same kind of miracles that he did in person that you guys also witnessed. What is the Lord doing through this miracle? He's authenticating his guys, among other things. He's saying, you know what? Listen to them. This message that they're proclaiming is mine. And here's how you know. I, God, am authenticating it by doing what only I, God, can do. So part of the message of the miracle is that Jesus is alive and well and at work by His Spirit through His apostles, whose message here, which is our New Testament, He's authenticating for all of posterity and for these particular people in this temple court. But what else? 
What else does the miracle do? Let me ask it this way. Have you ever noticed how of all the miracles of Jesus, overwhelmingly his miracles, whether he performs them directly in his person on planet Earth before his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, or here through his apostles by the Spirit, they're overwhelmingly miracles of healing. Now, he does some other stuff. I mean, he walks on water. He calms the storm. He does those things, by the way, in the presence of his disciples. He turns water into wine. He does do that. He feeds the multitude a couple of times by miraculously multiplying food. But what is he doing there? He's feeding hungry people. So hang on to that. But other than that, the overwhelming majority of his miracles are healing miracles. Why? Because what is sickness? What is hunger? What is thirst? What is suffering? What is death? As the Bible tells us, these are the effects of sin. Why does he do these particular kinds of miracles? Why does he have his guys do these particular kinds of miracles? Because they're proclaiming a message that deals with sin. Jesus is saying through these miracles, guys, look, I have the power not only to reverse the effects of sin in people's lives and restore them to what they otherwise should and would be. I have the power to deal with sin itself. See, Luke gives us another story about a lame guy paralyzed on a mat whose friends come to get him, but they don't carry him to his usual begging spot that day. They bring him to the house that Jesus is teaching in. They're too late. They can't get in. Too big a crowd. They go up the steps on the side of the house, and they dig through the mud roof and lower him. And what does Jesus say to the guy? He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. You know, and the guy's very disappointed by that, don't you think? His bloody-knuckled friends up there looking down are going, really? That's it? What is he saying? Even if you are paralyzed, that's pretty significant in terms of problems, isn't it? Challenges? Your biggest issue is your sin. And because he understands that everybody's beginning to murmur, what then does he do? He says to the crowd, okay, okay, what's easier to say? What's easier for me to say to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven? Or get up, rise, take your mat, and walk. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looks at the paralyzed man and says, rise, take up your mat and walk. You're like, you know, I don't really believe in miracles. If you believe in God, you believe in miracles. You have to. And the surprising thing is that if Jesus is God, the surprising thing is not that he did miracles. It would be surprising if he didn't. He does amazing things. And so Peter will now call them to repentance. He says in verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you act in an ignorance when you crucified the author of life, when you asked for Barabbas instead of him, as did also your rulers. But you really shouldn't have been ignorant because of what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, which is that the Christ would suffer in the place of his people for the sins of his people, and of what God foretold there in the prophets, he thus fulfilled in Christ. He says, so here's what you need to do. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins might be blotted out by the blood of this Jesus, whom you in wickedness shed. Here's the irony. God takes the blood that these guys in wickedness shed 
And he uses it to blot out their wickedness and mine and yours. It's quite remarkable. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he, Jesus, may, at the end of this age of salvation, this age that we've talked about, between the coming of Jesus and his birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the coming of Jesus again, at the end of this age, this age in which we're called by the power of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, to go out and live our lives as mission, taking the gospel mercies and taking the gospel message to everyone we possibly can because it's a both and. He says, and that he may at the end of this age send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring what? A lame guy here and there? A deaf man every once in a while? A blind person? A single family? No, for the restoring of everything. For the restoring of all things. That's what happens when he comes again. That's the end game of the mission about which God spoke also by the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. And what we'll see next week as we get into chapter 4, you'll see it really tomorrow as you begin your personal worship on chapter 4, is that what happens as a result of this call to salvation is that 5,000 men alone, and I say men alone, and some of you are not going to like this, but back in the first century, it's a cultural thing. Don't blame me. They only counted the men. Sorry, they did not count the women and children. We count you today. But 5,000 men alone came to faith in Christ. How many households does that represent? How many precious wives and kids, too, came to faith in Jesus, either directly there or under the leadership of those husbands? Thus proving, I think, that when it comes to the gospel mercies and message of Jesus, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And so I want to ask you one question. And I want to give you one suggestion, and then we'll close, okay? Here's the question. Who in your world needs you to see them? Who is it? Is it somebody in your family? Is it somebody in your office? Is it somebody in your school? Is it the person at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts? Their coffee is better. I'm sorry it is. But is that where it is? Who is it that you interact with all of the time? It could be one of your kids. It could be... Who is it needs for you to see them, needs for you to notice them, needs for you to stop walking past them in all of your hurriedness, and all of my hurriedness, and to be affected, to be moved by them? And what's stopping you? You know, I mean, is it time? You're like, oh, if I get involved in that, it's going to, you know, and it will, <laughs> probably. Is it money? You're afraid it's going to be costly? Okay, maybe it is. Maybe it will be. Is it pride? It's not cool to be seen with that person at school, and so, really? Because life as mission begins every day like this. Good morning, Lord. I don't belong to me. I belong to you, and that's a good thing. So here's the life. How do you want to use me today? Your spirit directs. Your spirit guides. Your spirit empowers as I live in personal relationship with you. So who needs to be seen? That's the first part. All right, one suggestion. The third Saturday of the month, 
beginning next Saturday, actually, on the 16th, and this is all on the website, continuing all the way through the month of June, we're going to do a half-day class on Missions 101 and personal evangelism training. And if you're going to go to Haiti, which I'm going to continue to pester you about, sorry, but I think you should, if you can, you're going to have to take that anyway. But even if you're not, go and, and talk Talk with Carter, talk with Matt, talk to these guys who are developing this class, who will be putting it on, about how it is that you can live your life more missionally, both in terms of the mercy of Jesus and also specifically in terms of, okay, now what do I actually say to somebody when I'm given the opportunity to speak of him? All right? So who needs to be seen And the third Saturday of every month? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we do praise you that you have um, not only created us and sustained us, but you've chosen us to be yours. What a privilege. That by the blood of your Son, you have purchased and made us part of your family, sons and daughters of the Father who is God, subjects of the King who is our Lord. And those who are called to live our lives as mission, God, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, move us to take our fingers off of our lives and to lay them before you day by day by day and in community with one another as your Spirit leads and empowers to go on the greatest journey we can have in this life, one, that you lead and that lasts forever. Who needs to be seen, Lord? Make that clear to us and give us the grace that we need to stop and to notice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.